Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we, your humble servants, come before your word, desiring that your spirit would speak, hoping that you would bring the salvation that you promised into our lives, restoring us to the goodness that you intend for us. We pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will always be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Dear people of God, as it has happened thousands of times before, a Sunday school teacher was telling the story of Jonah to her priest or to her uh, grade school class. And when she finished the story, she asked her students what lesson they could learn from the story. One little boy piped up and said, "People can make you sick." There's no doubt for Jonah. Jonah was at least was sick of people. He had a developed sense of who was redeemable and who wasn't. And the Gentiles, those people beyond the border of Israel, were certainly in the category of those who were not redeemable. Unlike the characters in Jane Austen's classic book Pride and Prejudice, these characters who finally overcome the the haughty barriers of class and presumption, the story in which love wins out. Jonah never seems to come to this point of self-awareness. He never faces down his own prejudice and pride. And love certainly doesn't win the day, at least from Jonah's perspective. Jonah seems insistent that his bias is completely justified. Those people who are outside the boundaries of Israel are outside the boundaries of God's grace. They're not worth God's time. Trouble is, Jonah also harbors this deep-down fear that God isn't as discriminating. Jonah has a sinking feeling that God doesn't understand just how worthless these Gentiles really are. As someone who has received God's grace... Jonah knew that God could be very long-suffering and merciful. And while he appreciated that for himself and for his people, Jonah couldn't see the point in wasting redemption on pagans and 'er ne'er-do-wells. As you remember from last two weeks ago, Jonah decided that he could escape God's call on his life by running away. He has this naive sense of nationalism as if God is a local deity that he can escape God by leaving the geography of Judea. Even though he later confesses with his mouth when he's speaking to the pagan sailors that he serves the God who made the earth and the sea, Jonah ridiculously acts as if he can somehow slip away from God's notice by hopping onto a boat headed for Spain. Salvation, he seemed to think, is the sole possession of a certain group of people, people with the right ethnicity, people in the right location, 
people with the right practice. In short, Jonah seems to think that God is on a leash tied to the temple of Jerusalem, much like the snarling dog that you walk past every day who has 14 feet of chain fastening him to his house, restricting his jurisdiction to a specific radius. You hope. But notice in Jonah's prayer from the interior of the fish in today's scripture, he mentions the temple twice and he alludes to it one more time. What we see in Jonah's prayer is that he has no intention of going to Nineveh after all he's been through. He figures if he ever gets out of this mess, the first place he's going is back to the security of the temple of Jerusalem. No point going out there into the messy world when there's always a church program to attend, right? Jonah says that if God is the, that Jonah confesses that God is the creator of the whole world, but Jonah acts as if God is interested only in the religious activity of a tiny elite group of people. Jonah confesses that Yahweh is Lord of all, but he acts as if God's radius of concern is limited to Israel. Unfortunately for Jonah, he's wrong. On the particular morning that Jonah jogs past the doghouse, he discovers that the chain has been removed. In fact, it never existed. God reaches beyond the boundaries of Israel and hurls a storm directly at the ship that Jonah is on, demonstrating the sovereign breadth of his jurisdiction. And then God fixes a game of casting lots, ensuring that Jonah draws the short straw, demonstrating again his control over the affairs of life. And finally, when Jonah makes a cowardly attempt at suicide, Yahweh sovereignly commandeers a big fish, to save Jonah from drowning in the depths of the sea, as Jonah had intended. Jonah thought he was done for. In fact, he hoped he was done for. He was sinking down into the depths of the sea, pounded by waves and snared by seaweed. His expectation was that he would eventually sink down to be swallowed up by Sheol, by the grave. This was the final stage of his descent into selfishness and self-pity. In order to escape the call of God, the text tells us that Jonah ran down to Joppa, where he boarded a ship and went down into the innards of the vessel. There he fell down into a deep sleep of depression, and he waited for his deliverance from the oppressive demands of God. As we said two weeks ago, Jonah is going down, down, down. But when the Lord pinpoints Jonah with this storm at sea, Jonah finally convinces the fearful sailors to simply toss him overboard, to throw him overboard into the drink to satisfy God's wrath. Another plan at self-destruction. But this suicide attempt is once again thwarted by the sovereign hand of God. The power struggle between God and Jonah continues because Yahweh appoints a great fish to consume Jonah. And what might look like destruction 
becomes a chance for life. In the Hebrew, the fish is referred to in feminine terms, and Jonah is described as being in the womb of the fish. He's returning to the fetal state. What looks like certain death becomes an opportunity for birth. Just as Jonah promised that he would give, excuse me, just as Jesus promised that he would give the world the sign of Jonah by entering into the grave and rising again from the dead. So this image of death before birth is underscored by the whole biblical drama. This is one of the great mysteries of the gospel. Unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it cannot come to life. That which often comes to us in the guise of death and destruction is often the prelude to resurrection and new life. What often looks like the end to us is God's path through the grave to new life. So Jonah finds himself precariously poised between death and life, so obviously in the hands of God, but not in the place of his own choosing. When things are going badly for Jonah, when he finds himself facing the worst of all imaginable circumstances, Jonah does what a lot of self-absorbed people do when they're despondent. He writes a song. Okay, that's a cheap shot at you artists in the congregation. (laughs) Jonah's first instinct when he's in the depth of despair is to pray, is to pray a psalm. This prayer comes in the form of an Old Testament psalm. In fact, it borrows many terms and phrases. It demonstrates that Jonah is aware of the the prayer book of Israel. And his first instinct is to pray, to pray a psalm. One Jewish writer said, whenever I'm in trouble, I pray. I pray a lot because I'm in trouble a lot. Jonah's prayer is in the midst of trouble, and it's laden with language from the psalms. It's a common form of prayer for ancient Israel. What we know as the book of Psalms is really the book of common prayer for the nation of Israel. It was the daily practice of Israelites to pray through these Psalms at various times in the day, through various seasons of the year. It's clear that this was the practice even of Jesus. His whole life and his speech are riddled through with the language of the Psalms. He followed the liturgy of the Psalms in his prayers through his entire life. Even when he's on the cross, the words of Psalm 22 are on his lips. And one of the things that we can learn from submitting ourselves to what St. Augustine calls the school of the Psalms, what St. Irenaeus called the gymnasium of the Psalms, this is where we exercise our faith. What we learn from the Psalms is that not all prayer is alike. Every season of life, every human emotion and experience is represented in the prayers of the Psalms. Some come in the form of praise and thanksgiving. Some come in the form of repentance. Many are in the form of lament. And some are even in the form of rage. The Hebrews understood that there are a variety of appropriate responses to God depending on our circumstances. Biblical faithfulness is never a one-note affair, and prayer embraces the whole sweep of human experience, from joy to pain. When Job 
when Job finds himself destitute and diseased, we see that his response is often to cry out in anger and confusion, to express his pain to God. But Jonah's instincts are different. If you you found yourself drowning and then swallowed by a large sea creature, you'd think that the appropriate form of prayer for such a circumstance would be a lament. Like Psalm 102, Lord, hear my prayer. Let my cry come up before you, for I am in trouble. Bend down and listen to me. Or in Jonah's case, perhaps an even more appropriate prayer than a prayer of lament would be a prayer of repentance, as in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. I am aware of my offenses. But strangely enough, Jonah, wedged in the intestines of a fish, chooses neither a prayer of lament or a prayer of repentance. He chooses a celebratory prayer of thanksgiving. Now, at first glance, that might sound like a very pious thing to do. In fact, some people will teach us that the that it is a form of spirituality to give thanks when things are dark. But remember the the criticism that Jesus had of the Pharisees. We played a song for you, Jesus said, and you didn't dance. We played a funeral dirge for you and you didn't mourn. The Pharisees are so consumed with their own sense of piety, so concerned about appearances, that they're unable to hear the rhythms of God in the world. They're unable to hear the tune that God is playing and keep in, in time with it. They're out of sync with what God is doing in the world. And they're incapable of mourning when it's time to mourn. They're incapable of rejoicing when it's time to rejoice. Because they insist that they're going to pick the music. They insist that they're going to be in control. The Psalms teach us that sometimes it's appropriate to praise, but they also teach us that at other times it's more appropriate to mourn, to lament, to cry out. Prayers of thanksgiving have their place, but so do prayers of confusion and even rage. I can think of a person who will regularly ask me how I'm doing, And if I am having a particularly bad day or week or month, and I say so, his response is always the same. Praise the Lord. (laughs) I usually want to say, no, wait a minute. You're not listening. My day is really crummy. I'm not a happy camper right now. But his response is always the same. Praise the Lord. Sometimes I wonder if we Christians feel that it's our duty to go around the world painting happy faces on things. That's somehow spiritual to never acknowledge the fact that there's real pain and real tragedy in the world. Fortunately, the scriptures and the Psalms themselves teach us otherwise. Biblical faith is not a form of stoicism. Prayer is not a technique for denial. God gives us permission to be honest in our prayers and in our speech. And when we're not honest, who do we think we're fooling anyway? 
Instead of coming off as people of strong faith, which is what I think we intend by always being positive, we come off as people who are oblivious to or unconcerned about the suffering of our neighbor, people who don't know how to mourn at funerals and dance at weddings. Jonah's prayer may come from the bottom of his heart, but Jonah's heart is desperately wicked. His intention in prayer is clouded by the pride and prejudice of his own self-absorption and his dislike for people outside his own comfort zone. If you want proof of Jonah's selfishness, even in this prayer, note this. Throughout just ten verses of this prayer, Jonah uses the personal pronoun 26 times as subject, object, and possessive. And every reference to himself is self-congratulatory. Not only is this prayer self-congratulatory, but Jonah can't seem to lift himself up without putting someone else down. It's like those Christians who can't talk about their own salvation without also pointing out that lots of other people are going straight to hell. Jonah doesn't know how to speak about God or how to speak to God without disparaging other people. His pride and prejudice ooze out of every pore. What makes it worse is that he insists on doing so with the language of religious piety. If he were just a bigot, it would be one thing. But he's a bigot who justifies his bigotry bigotry theologically. It's reminiscent of racist clansmen who justify their violence and their racism against other people by citing biblical precedent as if their love of Jesus somehow more than justifies their lynching of black men and their burning of churches. Jonah prays with the same kind of pious bigotry. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. But when we look at the narrative of chapter 1, we realize that Jonah has done nothing of the sort. In fact, he remained remarkably silent for someone who's called as a prophet. Even when the ship's captain says to Jonah, get up and call on your God, prompted by a pagan to call upon his Lord, Jonah remains silent, stubbornly. Eventually, Jonah asks to be silenced forever by requesting that the sailors toss him overboard. Likewise, Jonah prays to God, You cast me into the deep, and I am driven away from your sight. Does that ring true? If you recall correctly, Jonah is the one who fled from the Lord, and the sailors were the ones who tossed Jonah overboard at Jonah's request. And yet Jonah is placing the blame on God. Jonah is mouthing the rhetoric of salvation, even while he's facing destruction. He seems confident of his own worth before God, while at the same time he belligerently insists that all pagans are doomed to destruction. Notice that without provocation, Jonah lashes out at those who cling to worthless idols. Presumably, speaking of the Ninevites to whom he refuses to go and share the good news, and more immediately to the pagan sailors up top 
on the ship that Jonah has just disembarked. Those who cling to worthless idols, Jonah says, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The irony screams here because while rebelling against God, Jonah piously intones from the belly of the fish about his own spiritual superiority. I called on the Lord, but the pagans have rejected him. The worthless idolaters up top, while Jonah is praying this prayer, what are they doing? They're praising the name of God, the God of Israel. Jonah is in the grave of his own making, exacerbated by his insistence that he would rather die than obey the Lord, but the pagan sailors are having Wednesday night prayer meeting up on the ship. In fact, the very language used by Jonah to describe himself, that he called on the Lord, that he made vows to the Lord, that he sacrificed to the Lord, none of these things are true of Jonah. They're the very things that Jonah has refused to do. And yet, if you look in chapter 1, verses 14 and 16, it is precisely these three things that the pagan sailors have done. They have called on the Lord. They have made vows to the Lord. They have made sacrifice to the Lord. In fact, it says that they have feared the Lord. Who's saved in this story? Suddenly, the full tragic mockery of Jonah's prayer becomes apparent. He sits under God's righteous judgment for his rebellion because he refuses to believe in a God, to accept a God who saves people of that sort because he questions the judgment of God. While the very people that Jonah believes are beyond the grace of God are holding a revival meeting. Jonah's self-absorbed pride and xenophobic prejudice has reached frenzied pitch. The empty rhetoric of personal piety betrays a man who's so full of himself that he can't fathom a God whose love extends beyond whose love extends to those people Jonah hates. Jonah's in-your-face hypocrisy is so repugnant that it makes you want to, well, the fish has the right idea. (laughs) When Jonah finally spouts his final sanctimonious utterance, salvation belongs to the Lord. The fish loses her breakfast and Jonah is upchucked on the beach. Apparently, even a big fish knows baloney when she hears it. (laughs) To the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, the Lord says, I know your deeds. You claim to be rich, but instead you are in rags. You think you have everything you need, but instead you are wretchedly and pitiably poor. You are blind and naked too. You are neither hot nor cold, so I will spew you out of my mouth. Jonah and the church at Laodicea speak to a people who are self-absorbed, pompous and sanctimonious, people who have come to take for granted the riches of God's grace for them, and who refuse to admit their real need before God. 
These types are religious and yet repulsive to God. They're full of pious rhetoric, but empty when it comes to true faithfulness. God finds this sort of wordy but empty spirituality nothing less than nauseating. Even the fish can't stomach it. And so Jonah is expelled onto the beach like a bad burrito. And when he finally lifts up his face from the sand, pulls the half-digested seaweed away from his face, he finds himself facing east, back in the direction of Nineveh, pointed once again in the direction of the place that he so wanted to avoid. The God whom Jonah will later confess to be slow to anger and rich in mercy is giving Jonah another chance. He's even pointing him in the right direction. Remember Jonah's last sentence in his prayer from inside the fish. It contains a wonderful bit of ironic truth. Jonah declares in spite of himself, salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, salvation is God's work, not ours. Whomever God chooses to save is God's prerogative, not grounded in anybody's sense of worth or unworth. Salvation is not determined by you or me or by the liberals or the fundamentalists, not by the church or even by Jonah. If God wants to save pagan sailors, he does. If God wants to bring salvation to the evil city of Nineveh in Iraq, he does. And the wonderful truth is this. If God wants to save Jonah, he will. But Jonah has taken the long road. And now he's given another chance. God is truly long-suffering and full of mercy. In spite of Jonah's rebellion and his insistence at fleeing from God, God brings him full circle, facing back in the direction of his destiny. And Jonah has an opportunity, perhaps the third in this story, to repent of his pride and face his own prejudice as he fulfills God's mission of taking the message of hope to a broken and needy world. This morning, it strikes me as likely that the congregation is filled with both Jonah's and Ninevites. Some of us take for granted the fact that we're saved, even while we refuse to share that good news with people that we deem unworthy. We wallow in self-absorbed piety. We use spiritual rhetoric while we sneer at people who we deem to be beyond God's grace. Some of us are Ninevites. We've fallen so deeply into sin that we feel like we're outside the bounds of God's mercy altogether. Maybe even some church people have told you that. They've given you the impression that the gospel isn't for somebody like you. But the basic fact of this story is this. Both Jonah's and Ninevites equally need saving. Both need God's grace. Neither one of us 
are deserving, and yet God offers it anyway. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thank God it does. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.